Oh, good morning, brothers and sisters. Please do have a seat. And good morning also to those who are online. Uh, today we're going to be looking at Psalm 110, Psalm 110. So uh, it would be helpful if you have it open there, either in your Bible or in your order of service um, or on your device. If you need to get a Bible from the entrance to the cathedral, then feel free to do that. Um, uh, but whatever it is, be good to have Psalm 110 uh, before you so we can see it as we, as we work through. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us by your Spirit through your Word. Uh, and we pray that you help us now uh, as we look at Psalm 110, uh, that, uh, uh, that you appoint us to your Son, that you open our eyes to see him and to love him and appreciate him and give ourselves willingly to him, uh, that we might love and serve him always. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most, if not all of us here, know about Jesus. Uh, we know he is God the Son who took on humanity. We celebrate his birth at Christmas. We know that Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father and that he died on the cross as a sacrifice to pay the penalty of our sin on our behalf so that God can forgive us without saying that our sins are okay. We remember that on Good Friday. And we also know that he rose again from the dead, showing that he is indeed that king whom God had been promising, that death is not the end, and that those who believe in him and are forgiven by him will rise to eternal life. Now, we celebrated that on Easter Sunday. And we know that Jesus remained on earth for 40 days, that he taught his disciples about the kingdom, showing them that he was indeed the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and at the end of that time, he ascended into heaven. And we celebrated the ascension of Christ, last Thursday. But what is Jesus doing in heaven now? And what will he do in the future? Well, our psalm today was written many years before Jesus came. And yet it speaks prophetically about him. And as, as we read it, we will see and understand the present and future work of Christ and its implications for us. So let's have a look at that psalm together. The first thing we see as we come to the psalm is that it is a psalm of David. Uh, King David was an ancestor of Jesus, ruled over Israel a thousand years before Christ, and he pointed forward to Christ and the many things about that him foreshadowed his greatest descendant. The New Testament tells us that he is also a prophet who spoke about Christ, and that actually helps us as we come to this psalm. Now, some scholars will say that this psalm is just about the ancient kings of Israel. And it's possible to interpret it that way, though none of the ancient kings were as great as this psalm implies. But the New Testament definitively shows us that it's not the right interpretation. In our Gospel reading today from Luke 20, Jesus asks in verse 41, how people can say that the Messiah is David's son. For David says, and then Jesus quotes the first verse of the psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And he makes the point, David calls him Lord, so how can he be his son? Because in Jewish way of thinking, fathers are always greater than their sons. Now, of course, we know the answer. Lah. We know the son of David was much greater than David because he's not only David's son, but he's God the son. Uh, but Jesus' opponents didn't know this, and so it was a mystery to them. But the important point, actually, that I want to show you here is that both Jesus and his first century opponents agreed that this psalm was about the Messiah that the my Lord that David spoke about was the Christ, God's promised king, whom we know from elsewhere, descended from David. 
That was why it was a problem for the Jews, though not for Jesus. The apostles saw the psalm in the same way. In Acts 2.34, Peter quotes verse 1 on the day of Pentecost, saying that it refers to Christ, not David, because David did not ascend into the heavens. And Christ did. In Ephesians 1.20, Paul says that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. In Hebrews 1.3, we read that after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The writer rhetorically asks in verse 13, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And the point he's making is that God did say that to the Son in Psalm 110. Whether or not it was applied in some kind of minor anticipatory way to the kings of Israel in the past, that's a different question. But what is very clear is that the actual fulfillment of the Son is in Jesus. And that the first verse is about his ascension. So that's how we're going to read it today. And once we've unlocked the psalm with this gospel key, we see it speaks about what Jesus does from his ascension to his second coming. Verse 1 is about his ascension. Verse 2 and 3 about his present kingly reign. Verse 4 about his present role as our great high priest. And verses 5 to 7 about his future coming. As judge. So let's look at each of them in turn. First of all, as we've seen, uh, what is pictured in verse 1 is the ascension of Christ. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Right? The Lord there, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is Yahweh, the God of Israel. The my Lord there, with just a capital L and a small other letters, refers to the Messiah, God's promised king. And so God says to the Messiah, sit with me at my right hand, at the place of rulership and power, and I'm going to make your enemies your footstool. Your footstool, as you know, is a piece of furniture you put your feet up on, right? placed lower than the rest of your body. In, in the Old Testament metaphor, uh, in one Old Testament metaphor, the temple is God's footstool because God is so big that he can't, he can't fit into the temple, but you can meet him in the temple because in the imagery, that's, his, that's where he puts his feet. Uh, in another Old Testament metaphor, heaven is God's throne and the earth is his footstool. Uh, but here, the footstool of the Messiah is not a place, but his enemies, those who refuse to submit to his kingly rule. They are under him, humiliated, thoroughly vanquished, thoroughly subjugated. They might seem so powerful now. They might look as if they've got all the cards. God's people might feel helpless before them. But one day, they're going to be the footstool of the Messiah. And God calls this Messiah to come and sit beside him at his right hand while he does this. And that is what happened at Jesus' ascension. In Acts 1 verse 9 says he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of sight. The scene on the other side was actually pictured hundreds of years before that by the prophet Daniel. And Daniel 7.13 he said, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds came up one like a son of man. That's Jesus. And he came to the ancient of days, God the Father, and was presented before him. And then it says, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Remember how Ephesians 1.20, God says, uh, uh, Paul says, God raised Christ from the dead, seated him at the right hand in his heavenly places, and he goes on to say that was far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age and in the age to come, and he put all things under his feet. Jesus is the ascended king at God's right hand. And one day, his enemies will be his footstool. <coughs> now, this ascended king is addressed in verse 2 and 3, which speaks of his present reign in heaven. The last line of verse 3, translated, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. It's very hard to understand. Uh, even the ESV footnote says the meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain. And I'm very sorry, I cannot help you with that at the moment. But the rest of verse 2 and 3 is very clear. Uh, verse 2 starts, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Right? That is, the king's reign will begin from Jerusalem. That's where Zion is. That's where Jesus died and rose again. That's where the gospel was spread out from the, to the whole world. Right? The kingly reign of Jesus began on the cross in Zion. And now his kingdom is spread throughout the world. Yet it's not a demarcated kingdom in a geographical sense. Those who belong to this kingdom are mixed with those across the world who, who hate him. Uh, in our schools, in our universities, in our offices, in our families, in our society, there are many who are enemies of Christ. Yet mingled among them are those who submit to Christ as king, who love him, who obey him, and in whose lives he truly reigns. Jesus rules in the midst of his enemies, for he rules his people. And that's important for us, isn't it? We are not trying to create God's kingdom politically. No such thing as a truly Christian country. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus rules in the midst of his enemies. But the enemies of the king are not just people and systems and movements that oppose him. Behind that, there are bigger enemies, the spiritual forces of evil. They were defeated at the cross, but they are still active in the world. But Jesus rules in the midst of his enemies. Even death is an enemy of Jesus. He defeated it at his resurrection, but it still takes us, his people, and those we love. But Jesus rules in the midst of his enemies. And so in the midst of those who oppose him, in the midst of the spiritual forces of evil, even death itself, Jesus reigns over his people. And the people he reigns over are actually his former enemies. Uh, Romans 5 verse 10 says that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. God loves us so much that Jesus died to change his enemies into his people. But it doesn't happen to everyone, and it doesn't happen by force. We willingly submit to our loving Savior who died for us. Verse 3 of Psalm 110 begins, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. And again, that's important for us, isn't it? We can't force anyone to become a believer. We can't manipulate or bribe anyone into the kingdom. Because if it's a spiritual kingdom, then that just doesn't work. The people of the kingdom offer themselves to the king 
freely on the day of his power, that is, at the time when he powerfully comes to save them. And friends, if you and I are in the kingdom, then we have offered ourselves freely to serve and obey Jesus as our king. The Spirit worked in us powerfully, brought us from being dead to sin and alive in Christ. So we want to serve him from the heart. We want to obey him by obeying his word. We love him because he first loved us and gave himself for us. God's people then, we offer ourselves to him freely on that day of his power, the day he works to save us. And as we do that in verse 3, and we do that in verse 3 in what our translation calls holy garments. Uh, it's the same phrase translated the splendor of holiness in, in, in Psalm 90, 96 verse 9. Uh, because brothers and sisters, we have been washed clean from our sins by the blood of Christ. We are considered pure and holy, covered in the righteousness of Christ. And so when we come to Jesus to offer ourselves to him, he sees us not as the wretched sinners that we are in and of ourselves, but as holy and splendid and majestic in him. And he accepts our offering because he has made us holy. What a wonderful king he is, isn't it? That he makes it possible for us to offer ourselves to him by giving us new life in the spirit, and he makes it possible for him to accept the offering by making us holy through the blood that he shed for us. What a wonderful Savior, what a wonderful King. And we freely and wholeheartedly offer ourselves to him, our ascended King. But this sound speaks more than, Jesus, than of Jesus just as King. It also speaks of his high priestly ministry. Our David continues in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was this mysterious figure we saw in our Old Testament reading. It's the king of Salem, or to put in later terms, Jerusalem. Uh, we, we, uh, we read in Genesis that he is also a priest of the Most High God. And he points forward to Jesus because Jesus was going to be not only God's king, but also God's priest. And the psalm shows it. As you read the book of Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews quotes this psalm a number of times, and he applies it to Jesus as our great high priest, and he shows us what it means for us. He says in chapter 7, verse 26, that unlike the old covenant priests, Jesus, our high priest, is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And unlike those high priests, he did not have to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for his people. Instead, he sacrificed himself once and for all. He himself was that sacrifice that he offered for our sins as he died for us on the cross. And when as priest he ascended into the heavens, he brought his own blood into the heavenly places, just as the priest took the blood of animal sacrifices into the holy places in the temple. In Hebrews 10, 11 to 14, the writer of the Hebrew picks up the psalm again, and he explains that every priest, standing daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you see how he's using the psalm? 
The fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God doesn't just point to his authority as king. It points to the finished nature of his atoning work. He can sit because he's done his job. For every, for, for, for by a single sacrifice, never to be repeated, he has perfected us forever. Unlike the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Had to be repeated again and again. Right? That's why we must never think of the Eucharist as a sacrifice we are offering to God. Jesus made the sacrifice once and for all on the cross. Right? As we say in the liturgy, Jesus by his one oblation, that is his sacrifice on the cross, made of himself once offered, made a full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. What we do in the Lord's Supper is to remember his sacrifice, to trust in him who died for us once and for all. And as we do that, we are feeding on him in our hearts by faith. The fact that Jesus was sacrificed once and for all means that sin has been paid, and it means that also we must never keep on punishing ourselves for our sin. I, sometimes we think, I have sin so bad, I've got to punish myself a little bit first before I get, you know? No, if Jesus has paid the punishment, it is finished. He has taken the retribution, that just payback penalty for us. If we repent of our sins and we trust in Jesus, that applies to us. We don't need to keep punishing ourselves over and over again. Jesus paid it all and sat down. Now, God may discipline us for our own good, teach us lessons that he wants us to learn. That's true, but it's never punishment in wrath. It's never retribution. It also means we don't have to punish each other. Now, I'm not talking about where the law of the land has been broken, right? person who breaks a civil law deserves the retributive punishment of the law. That, that's a separate issue. I'm not talking about parents disciplining their children in love as God disciplines us. That's necessary. But in church, we don't punish people retributively for things they've repented of and been forgiven for. Church discipline is meant to bring people to repentance. Uh, if you're persisting in unrepentant sin, then church discipline should be applied to show you how, how serious that sin is and, and to urge you to repentance. But if you've repented and been forgiven, then church discipline has done its job. Don't need to be punished again. Now, of course, if someone is a pastor or a growth group leader or something of like that and he commits a sin like sexual immorality, that would, that would just disqualify him from ministry. And there may be certain sins that disqualify people, say from teaching Sunday school or from counting money, even if they repent, because we want to protect other people in case they, re in case they relapse. Now, those are not retributive punishments, but they're an appropriate way of saying that someone's not qualified to do that ministry. But if you've repented, been forgiven, don't actually need to be punished again. Jesus made the once and for all sacrifice for sin. That's enough. Never has to repeat it, neither do we. But there is one aspect of Jesus' priestly work that does continue. Hebrews 7.25 says that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him since he ever lives to intercede for them. Now when you think about it, it's a wonderful truth, isn't it? Jesus is praying for us. In the midst of all the trials of life, we are kept, how? Huh? Through Jesus' prayers. 
No, it's too good for us to pray for each other, but you know what? When we pray for each other and we pray for ourselves, we are praying in Jesus' name. So whether I pray for you or you pray for you or someone else prays for you actually doesn't matter in terms of the effectiveness of the prayer. What's important is that we are praying in, with, and through Jesus. He's the primary intercessor. That's where the power is. That's what assures us that our prayers are heard. So let me remind you, brothers and sisters, Jesus is always praying for you. Even if everybody else forgets to pray for you, Jesus is praying for you. He prays that his blood shed on the cross will be applied to your life. He prays that you'll be kept from the evil one, that you'll persevere in trusting him to the end. You can't get better than that. A guy called Robert Murray McShane once said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. So the fact that Jesus is a priest forever means that he can truly save us, not just as a one-off sacrifice for sin, but the one who keeps on praying for us until we reach the end. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. In our psalm so far, we've seen the ascension of Christ, seen his present rule as king, his present work as priest. The last thing we will see is his future work as the coming judge. Verse 5 speaks to Yahweh, he's talking to now to the God of Israel, about the Messiah, about Jesus, the Lord. And this is what he says, verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. The day of his wrath is the day when, when Jesus comes back to judge the world with perfect justice. And the psalm presents that day to us, that day of final judgment in, in picture language, which is poetry. But the picture is a very violent one. Verse 6, he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Right? The picture is that of a king with his sword violently killing thousands and thousands of his enemies and their leaders across the world with corpses piling up as he goes about his work. And the picture continues in verse 7. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Right? It's a picture of someone who's, who's so determined to finish a task when he gets to the stream, he doesn't stop and he, you know, kneel down, put his head down and, and, and drink the water. No, no, he just drinks from the stream as he passes through it. Get on with his job of slaying his foes. It's a terrible picture, isn't it? But it points to a terrible reality. Jesus will judge the world relentlessly and he won't stop until he's finished his job. Yes, he will judge with perfect righteousness, but, but perfect righteousness will mean death, not just a physical death as is pictured in this poetry, but, but worse, what it points to, eternal death. For that is the just punishment, the just retribution that is warranted for our sins against God. And those who oppose Jesus have no priest and no sacrifice who can take that sin away. 
Further, when Jesus comes back to judge the world, it will mean final defeat and destruction for all those spiritual forces of evil who oppose him, the devil and all his minions. And they will finally get the retribution they deserve. And then there is the final enemy. In 1 Corinthians 15, 25 to 26, we read that Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And when that happens, death will be swallowed up in victory. Those who are in his kingdom will put on immortality and will live with him in glory forever. So brothers and sisters, let us be steadfast, immovable, pressing on in the work of the Lord. Our labor is not in vain. Whatever setbacks we face today, King Jesus will reign in the end. And even death will not be able to stop him. And let us be diligent, not negligent, in bringing the gospel to our family and friends. And pray for them earnestly that they might give themselves to Jesus freely and find forgiveness and life in him. So friends, we've seen in this psalm that Jesus has ascended into heaven, that he is the king who reigns in the midst of his enemies, that he is the priest who has offered that sacrifice and now he prays for his people. And one day he will come back to judge the world. Let me close by just taking us back to the very first verse of the psalm once again. Because in verse 1, Jesus, David calls Jesus, my Lord. Jesus was indeed David's Lord. But here's the question. Is he your Lord? Can you truly say with David, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Is Jesus your Lord or are you one of the enemies? If you're still an enemy, remember that Jesus loves you. And Jesus died for his enemies to make them his friends. He died so that you can be reconciled to him. Better you offer yourself to Jesus now before he comes to judge the world. And if you do, then he will not just be your king, but he will be your priest who loves you, gave himself for you, and will always be praying for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not only raised your son from the dead, but you have exalted him to your right hand in glory. Thank you that he is our king who has enabled us to offer ourselves to him freely. Thank you that he is our great high priest who ever lives to intercede for us. Thank you that he will come again as judge and that you will indeed make his enemies a footstool for his feet.
Lord Jesus, we offer ourselves to you and your service. Please take us and use us as your people, as you will. Help us to live for you in the midst of your enemies. Thank you that you have paid for our sins once and for all, and that you are always praying for us now. And help us, we pray, as we seek to tell our friends and family about your salvation, that they may also come to you and be saved before you come as judge. Now to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we all honor and glory, now and forever. Amen.